The International Organization for Migration is sounding the alarm in Sudan, warning urgent action is needed to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe from unfolding. The reason why there's an aversion to the democratization of Sudan is because there is a general consensus that this, these Islamist trends will be the beneficiaries of these democratic processes. The conflict is escalating and threatens to explode into a full-scale civil war. I want to be clear that Sudan's civilians must be the ones to define Sudan's path going forward. An armed conflict has erupted between rival factions of the military government in Sudan, resulting in widespread violence and chaos across the country. To be sure, Sudan is no stranger to war. The fighting comes just months after the civilian political forces and the military signed an agreement to transfer power to a civilian government. As the conflict grows, what's at stake for the Horn of Africa? How are international actors impacting the conflict? How do we work with a democracy that's not necessarily a liberal democracy? And how does the legacy of atrocities in Darfur and the role of the International Criminal Court figure in today's violence? This is Global Insights by Network 2020. Today, the complexities of these power struggles Sudan's fight for democracy, and the impact of this conflict on the MENA region and beyond. Joining us is Sami Hamdi, Managing Director of the global risk and intelligence company International Interest, who has been featured many times as a commentator for Al Jazeera, Sky News, BBC, TRT World, and other outlets. Moderating the discussion is Courtney Doggart, president of Network 2020. I'd love to start in a place where we can really just get everybody on the same page. So um, I really want to start with kind of a factors and actors question. So what are the factors that led to the outbreak of the conflict and who are the main actors that we should be aware of? Thank you very much, Courtney, for having me. I think the, I think there are the immediate reasons and then there are the contextual reasons. And Sudan is easy understood if we go backwards. In other words, we start with the immediate reasons, which is that in February, the army chief, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, Burhan, a name you'll hear quite often, the army chief who was the de facto ruler of Sudan, in February, he announced that the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF, which is an, an organization that was incorporated into the army that is made up of some of the mercenaries that were used in the war against Darfur in Western Sudan, the RSF chief, Hamiti Burhan in February announced that this RSF had to merge with the army, that over these five years, the RSF has become this independent organization, almost with its own foreign policy, the Sudanese that you read about who fought in Yemen, who fought in Libya, they are from this RSF force, which has developed its own international networks and lent its troops to the likes of the UAE and others in terms of fighting in these various different arenas. Burhan announced in February that this organization, which has become powerful and independent, has to merge with the army. And the head of the RSF, Hemeti, understood very well that if he merges with the army, then it clips his wings. 
He will no longer be influential. He will no longer have any power. And this is why he responded by saying, give me 10 years before I incorporate within the army. The army chief said no. And therefore, Hamiti found himself in a corner and he decided to launch an attack on the Sudanese army in a bid to seize power himself. Those are the immediate reasons. But the contextual reasons reveal a more complex picture in that the, the reason Burhan wanted the RSF to merge with the army was because in December last year, Burhan, the army chief, was pressured into what's called the framework agreement, which essentially was he was pressured to hand over power to a select group of civilian parties in this framework, particularly a group of civilian parties called the Forces for Freedom and Change, which are made up of leftist parties, the Communist Party, and the party called the Ummah Party, which ruled for three years in the 1980s, and that was toppled by al-Bashir, by Omar Bashir in 1989. Burhan realized that he was being pressured into this agreement. So in January, what he did, he went to Cairo, he went to Sisi, and he asked Sisi to host a wider conference to include more civilian parties, essentially a move by which to dilute the power of this particular civilian group so that they would renege on the agreement and he would continue to stay in power. And the civilian parties, when they realized this was the tactic, when they realized that he was expanding participation to stay in power, they started rallying around these rapid support forces, around Himmeti, the head of the rapid support forces. And that's when Burhan, who saw this beginning to take place in front of him, said that the RSF must merge. In other words, that I'm going to play with these political machinations. But if you decide to try to use force against me via the RSF, I'm going to force the RSF to merge with the army. But again, there's even more contextual, which adds an extra layer of complexity to this, which is that if you look at the manner in which Sudan's revolution, if you would call it a revolution, some will call it a coup on Omar al-Bashir, the reality is that when Omar al-Bashir fell or when he was toppled, there were two prevalent narratives. And these two narratives are important to understand in terms of to, to appreciate how we got to this stage. The first narrative was the one that we saw all over the media in which there was a revolution, people took to the streets, they toppled Omar al-Bashir, there was a romanticism about it and they toppled Omar al-Bashir and the like. The second narrative, however, was that Omar al-Bashir was not toppled by revolution, but rather the result of 30 years of US sanctions as a result of Burhan and Hemeti, the head army chief and the head of the RSF coming together to topple uh, Omar al-Bashir, Salah Gosh, the intelligence chief, also contributing to toppling Omar al-Bashir. In other words, for these actors, it wasn't necessarily a revolution, but rather the result of US sanctions and they acted accordingly and they brought down Omar al-Bashir. The reason this distinction is significant is because it explains why Sudan did not go immediately to elections. If you compare Tunisia, for example, when the Arab Spring took place, because it was such a popular revolution, neither the army nor the intelligence services dared to hold on to power. There was a rush to give as many concessions as possible in order to live to fight another day. Likewise, in Egypt, the army were under such pressure as a result of the popular revolution that they decided to give free and fair elections in order to live to fight another day. But in Sudan, these dynamics were not present. Instead, there was a sort of relaxation amongst the political actors that this was not a revolution in the conventional sense, but rather the terms of Sudan's rehabilitation 
would not be determined by the people who took to the streets, but by Washington that imposed the sanctions, that the financial assistance required in order to address the economic crises that drove people to the streets, that would require acceding to Washington's demands rather than going to the people and securing a mandate and then forcing Washington to see to the people's demands. And how that manifested was that this, the, the free forces for freedom and change, the civilian parties, instead of insisting on elections, they entered into a negotiated settlement with the army. Essentially, the parties came together and they said to themselves, look, if we hold elections, we will have the same scenario as Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya, in which the Islamists are most likely to win. And they are perhaps the undesirables of the political parties that we want to win these elections. Anybody who's read the New York Times article, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, the, the dark prince of the Middle East about the UAE crown prince, there's a very good conversation documented in the article in which the UAE's bin Zayed says to American officials that if you promote democracy in the region, Islamists will be the beneficiaries. So be careful what you wish for. The argument at the time when al-Bashir fell was, if we hold elections, the Islamists will come to power. And this is why the forces for freedom of change, which are made up of the leftists, the communists, and the Ummah party, they feared that if they held elections, they would be sidelined democratically. And this is what pushed them to enter into an agreement with the army in which the army would rule for two years. There would be the Supreme Military Council led by Burhan. There would be a civilian government. But after two years, the army would hand over power to the civilian government. The perception that Washington dictates the terms became abundantly clear immediately after this government was formed. First, we saw normalization of ties with Israel, which is extremely unpopular with the Sudanese population and something that would not have happened under a democracy or under democratic process. But the reason the army did it, despite it being unpopular, was because they believed this was a condition by which Washington would then release financial assistance. Then afterwards, we saw the removal of Islam, the term Islam as a source of legislation from the Sudanese constitution as part of a peace agreement with rebel groups. Again, we saw protests among the Sudanese population. It was deemed to be unpopular, but it was seen as necessary on the part of the political actors because they believe the power of the revolution was not from the people, but on Washington, in that if we can accede to these demands, then we will get the necessary financial assistance. And given it's not the people who brought the revolution, we can negotiate for ourselves power with Washington, with the UN envoy and with the European powers that are involved and with the UAE, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And the reason I mentioned these countries now is to make an important point here, which is that when Tunisia's revolution took place, the UAE did not celebrate. When Egypt's revolution took place, the UAE did not celebrate, neither in Libya. In fact, in the region, the UAE-Saudi axis is often seen as the architects of the downfall of the democratic transitions in these countries. The only revolution that they celebrated was Sudan, which gives an indication as to how they viewed what had happened in Sudan. And the Saudi ambassador actually caused an uproar in Sudan when Omar al-Bashir was toppled, when he made the statement and he said, but for Saudi Arabia, Omar al-Bashir would not have been toppled. And the Saudi ambassador was seen as essentially flexing his muscle in Khartoum and the like. And if you notice, Saudi Arabia is the one trying to broker and mediate between the two parties, which is testament to the influence that it has in Sudan. But the point here being is that for two years, we saw the government implement measures 
that it would never have been able to implement democratically. Even the transition agreement, which saw the forces for freedom and change secure 69% of the parliament appointed members of parliament, essentially a two thirds majority, which lets them make constitutional changes. The Sudanese, the reason why the forces for freedom and change came under criticism is because the Sudanese said that parties that would never get anywhere near these numbers in elections have suddenly negotiated for themselves the unilateral ability to impose the ideological changes that referendums are usually required in order to bring about. The reason why all of this is significant and why the two narratives are significant is because in 2021, when the army, surprise, surprise, doesn't hand over power to the civilian parties and instead puts the civilian prime minister under house arrest, and instead decides to do away with the civilian government. The argument that the army chief gives is, why should these people who would never win an election be handed over power? I have as much right to rule then as they do. And not only that, the powerful Darfurians, Darfur, which was a big highlight issue amongst the Western capitals and the like, the two Darfurian giants, Jibril Ibrahim and Minni al-Minnawi, who were ministers in the civilian government, they supported the army overthrow of the civilian government because Jibril Ibrahim in a statement said that, that the parties in the forces for freedom and change are getting a disproportionate amount of power through this transition agreement. And either we hold elections or we have a renegotiation of the transition agreement. In other words, it was clearly a coup, but it was a coup not necessarily on a democratic transition. It was a coup of the terms of the negotiated transition that was designed to prevent elections from taking place in the first place. And that's why if you notice, when Burhan in 2021 toppled the civilian government, what he immediately said was, I will hold elections within a year. It wasn't that he was sincere about it. This was a threat to the civilian parties, that if you force me to hand over power, I will go to elections and will make sure that we all lose. And during this period as well, Burhan released some of the Islams who had been imprisoned, almost as if he was saying, I'm going to release the very elements that you're worried will win the elections and come to power. It's not about whether they will win free and fair. The other parties considered that maybe because they were entrenched in the state, they might be have advantages and the like. But the point here being is that Burhan threatened elections because he believed this was what they did not want to see take place in Sudan. And that's why in the following year, we saw heavy pressure being exerted on Burhan. Washington decided that given that there's a threat of elections, let's just go and renegotiate with Burhan. Burhan, what do you want? How can we split the powers between us? And that resulted in a December agreement where Burhan, the framework agreement, we're back to the start of the discussion the framework agreement where Burhan is pressured into a new agreement that gives him some more powers, but gives overwhelming powers to the civilians. But again, we have this dynamic over the mandate. Burhan is arguing, Burhan is not a Democrat. Burhan's point is, why can't Washington recognize me like it recognizes Sisi in Egypt? Why can't it recognize me like it recognizes the other dictators in the region? Why am I the only one being forced to hand over power to these civilian parties? So Burhan is not looking for democracy here, but rather Burhan's strongest argument and the way he's been able to win support from the other factions is by saying to the factions, look, 
We know these parties will never get a majority in an election. We know they will never get more than 10, 15% in an election. But Washington and the UN are asking me to hand over power. Does that make you happy? They say, no, that makes us really unhappy. So Burhan says, come and support me and let's ensure that this framework agreement is not implemented. And here is where Hamidi and the RSF come in, in that these civilian parties who don't want elections, who are keen on a transition of power without elections, have rallied behind the RSF and actually lent their support to this armed attempt to seize power from the army chief. And this is where now we see the more complex dynamics take place in that now, if you look at Hemeti, if you look at the PR campaign that he has embarked on in order to convince the international community of his cause, he's appeared on numerous channels, including Israeli channels. And the argument is the same. I am at war with Islamists. I am at war with radical Islamists. And the reason that's significant is because consider that Hemeti has been the number two in the military institution for the past five years. That means Hemeti has sat on the table of all of these international delegations that are involved in the transition process. When Hemeti uses this argument to, to, to appeal to the international community, it means the conclusion he has arrived from his interactions with these international delegations is that the thing they fear the most is the return of the Islamists in a way that Tunisia delivered them to power Egypt or Libya or the like. And that's why he's been pressing this particular narrative. But before I, I hand over back to the moderator, in terms of the general picture, the general picture is one in which you have two generals vying for power within a framework in which nobody is inclined towards a democratic process. And the fight is not about whether there should be a democratic process. The fight is that given that we all agreed that there should be no democratic process, which of us should be the beneficiaries of these negotiated settlements? And as it stands, the international community prefers the forces for freedom of change because they are ideologically inclined towards achieving the aims that sanctions were imposed on Sudan in the first place in order to achieve, while the army chief believes that given if I can normalize ties with Israel, if I can remove Islam from the constitution, if I can offer greater autonomy to Darfur, if I can respect South Sudan's independence, if I can fulfill all these aims that Washington is keen on, then Washington might be inclined to let me rule and accept my authority and it won't push on this democratic transition. It's a war for power where democracy is not in the consideration at all. Thank you. That was, I mean, I know that there was a lot to cover <laughs> and you covered a lot of ground there. Um, you know, with that, I wanted to talk a little bit about, I, I was going to ask about the state of democratization in Sudan, but basically from what I'm understanding, it is not at all, um, it almost isn't even on the table in in, in many respects. Um, so I just wanted to, to get your assessment, if you wouldn't mind quickly, um, you know, are there one, are there groups in Sudan that are still very pro democratization and, and what does that look like and what are they saying? And, you know, what, what would you say about Washington's commitment to democratization in Sudan after this incident? I think the difficulty with talking about this topic is that if you look at the Arab Spring, it was abundantly clear that there is one trend that dominated the free and fair democratic elections, which were the Islamist parties. And one thing, I know anecdotes are bad form, but they might help the audience to understand. I was in Egypt in 2013 before Morsi was elected 
And I remember going around, you know, from Alexandria, going down south all the way to Elminia, to the Sudanese border, talking to random people, who will you vote for? What is it that's going to govern the way you vote and the like? And the overwhelming majority of people that I spoke to, if you ask them about a political program or economic program, they knew nothing about the programs of the candidates. But when you ask them who they'd vote for, they would say, I would vote for Morsi. Why will you vote for Morsi? We want somebody who fears Allah. But surely there's more to politics than this. No, no. If he fears Allah, Allah will open the heavens for him and Egypt will be made better. The point here is that the sentiments that were overwhelmingly present in the Middle East is, as Bin Zayed says in this New York Times article, overwhelmingly in favor of the Islamist trends. And this is why I think that when we talk about the democratic process in Sudan or the like, the reason why there's an aversion to the democratization of Sudan is because there is a general consensus that this, these Islamist trends will be the beneficiaries of these democratic processes. And I think that for Washington or indeed for the European capitals, at least from my engagement with them behind closed doors in these you know, Chatham House rule discussions that you have, the, the mood is how do we work with a democracy that's not necessarily a liberal democracy that comes in a very different form? It's clear that people have an inclination to these trends, but we don't know how to adapt and work with these particular trends. And I think that's also fueling why when you look at Tunisia, where there's a coup taking place, why there is a hesitation on the part of European capitals, such as Paris, such as Macron, who told the magazine Le Grand Continent in 2020 in an interview in which he said the Arab Spring elections produced results that we consider to be regressive. That shows the preference for regression. So I think when we talk about the democratization of Sudan, there are two arguments. There is one, do we accept democracy irrespective of the results? And I think the general consensus, even amongst the international powers was, no, we won't accept it. And that's why there was a blessing for the negotiated transition that bypassed the people and bypassed the elections. Or do we go for a democracy in which we and I use this word very carefully, and it's not my phrase, and I'm not fond of it. Do we hold elections only when the people are educated and able to make the correct choices in democracy, which is what the forces for freedom and change are arguing, which is a very arrogant imperialist kind of view, but nevertheless, this seems to be the prevailing argument. The idea being that we can't trust these people to vote. And I think that at the heart of it is, and to go direct to the heart of your question is, if you ask the Sudanese people, even they're not entirely sure. The Sudanese people are split and divided in that some will say, yes, elections will produce a win for Islamist trends, but only because the Islamists are entrenched in the state or only because they're the most organized party. Some will say Sudan is not ready for elections. We have rebel groups in the North, rebel groups in the West, and therefore there should be a negotiated transition, but in another form. In other words, the absence of a mandate, and the reason why the mandate is significant, is that note in Tunisia, and even though we have the coup today with Qais Saeed, but once the elections were held, no one could dispute the mandate. The people had voted. Even if you didn't like the results, there was a clear wielding of that mandate to form a new constitution. The reason the army took one year to mobilize against Morsi in Egypt was because he had a clear mandate. They couldn't mobilize until the people took to the streets complaining about the economic crisis. In other words, the mandate means something. And I think Sudan, that's where the fear is in terms of how can we avoid this mandate issue? And I think at the heart of this is the avoidance of the democratization process is what has led to war. And I think the difficulty is that even if the, if the question sounds noble, should we support democracy in Sudan? I always think the, the more relevant question is, 
if the democracy doesn't produce the result you like, will you still support it? And I think the answer as it stands in the region is an emphatic no. Thank you. Um, just zooming out a little bit, you mentioned some of the actors that are also involved. You mentioned UAE, um, US and sanctions. Uh, what are some of the other outside forces that are influencing the conflict and how are international actors responding to what's happening on the ground? For those who, who don't follow the region in particular, during the Arab Spring, there were two international camps, Qatar and Turkey on one side, UAE and Saudi Arabia on the other side. The concern was that the Arab Spring was an organic popular movement that, put, uh, that spread across the region. It was like a fire that continued spreading. The fear in UAE and Saudi Arabia was that it might reach their borders. UAE and Saudi Arabia, their position was, we might be able to adapt to it, but we don't want it coming into our countries. While Qatar and Turkey believed that given that their allies were the beneficiaries of the democratic process, we should support the Arab Spring and our allies might even come to power in Saudi and the UAE. And therefore we'll be, able, and for those of you who might remember, the Qatari Emir was in Washington when he met with Obama and he spoke as if, you know, he was talking about Egypt's foreign policy as if he was the president of Egypt, signaling just the extent to which he felt that bond with those who were winning those elections. The reason that's significant is that in Sudan, we saw Turkey and Qatar become very upset with Omar al-Bashir, who was desperate for money, who was feeling the pinch with regards to the economic sanctions, who began to reach out to Saudi UAE, saying, I need $2 billion in order to prop up my budget. And the, the revolution or the protest actually happened because the prime minister of Sudan, first he lifted subsidies on fuel, which caused protest. Then he lifted subsidies on bread and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. The point here being is that by the time the protest took place, Qatar and Turkey had already lifted their hands from supporting Sudan. So the UAE and Saudi Arabia were able to exert their influence unopposed. The UAE and Saudi Arabia, their aim was very simple in Sudan. It was to ensure that the threat of a democratic process that they saw in Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya is not replicated in Sudan. Let's keep it a negotiated uh, transition. We'll help it economically, but let's make it in a way that will not act as a conductor for protests that could take place in UAE and Saudi Arabia. And that's why it's fascinating that when the army and the civilian groups, when Omar al-Bashir was toppled, it took two months to form a government. In those two months, the civilian groups and the army clashed with each other. There was killing on the streets as well. The way the UAE brought them together was a very simple message. Guys, if you don't agree, the US will push for elections. If they push for elections, we all lose. So get to the table and come to an agreement. And I think it's fascinating that the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, on his visit to Saudi Arabia this time, he tweeted and said, we talked about Sudan as well, suggesting that the US is leaning on Saudi Arabia and the UAE with regards to Sudan as well. So for the international actors, in terms of what's taking place in Sudan today, it's abundantly clear in that who is more likely to prevent a democratic transition? Who is more likely to prevent elections? The Saudi Arabia and UAE believe that Burhan keeps threatening elections and keeps threatening to restore the Islamists. Whereas Hamiti seems to be a guarantor for no elections. And this is why there is a preference for Hamiti. And actually Hamiti's strength, Hamiti to, uh, to remind you, is the RSF, the force that is detached from the army. Hamiti's power has come from five years of working as a mercenary contractor for UAE in Yemen and for UAE in Libya. UAE has supported the Southern separatists against the Houthis. The Sudanese troops have been present in Yemen. 
and the UAE has supported Haftar in Libya in trying to topple the internationally recognized government in Tripoli, and the Sudanese forces have been a key part of that. For the UAE, it's about ensuring that this transition does not end up becoming democratic. And the same for Saudi Arabia. For Washington, I think it's less about democracy and more about that second question that we asked, which is how can we have a democratic transition in which people vote favorably, in which people vote for people that we have a preference for. And I think the, 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 for Washington, they believe this cannot come about through the army. It has to come about through civilian parties, through these leftist parties who are ideologically more inclined towards the West or the like, and therefore they should be the beneficiaries of this negotiated transition. But to go back to your question, even though I've gone left, right, everywhere, the most influential international forces are the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Washington. And all three are in consensus that there should be a negotiated transition to hand over power to civilian parties without elections and civilian parties that are inclined towards implementing the ideological changes that are necessary in the eyes of these powers, in the eyes of Washington, in order to prevent Sudan becoming either a haven for terrorism or essentially leaning towards the East, or relying on Russia like they did before. In terms of Egypt, very good, Gaurav has just put it on the group and it just popped up in front of me. I was just about to go back to Egypt. Egypt, although it's part of this axis of UAE, Saudi Arabia, uh, in terms of pushing back against the democratic transitions, Egypt actually supports Burhan, the army chief, against the UAE-backed Hemeti. And the reason is simple. The, U the Egypt's major crisis now in the east of Africa is the Renaissance Dam that Ethiopia is building. Egypt is terrified that this dam is going to cause a water scarcity in Egypt. And they believe that once Ethiopia builds this dam, Ethiopia will have this leverage over Egypt that will never be able to be removed. And Trump himself, when he was president of the US, in, in, in remarks that he made that were leaked, he said Ethiopians need to understand that Egypt will bomb this dam if it's built. Essentially, Trump acknowledging that Egypt is really serious about this issue with the dam. Egypt believes that the UAE are sympathetic to the Ethiopians, that as part of UAE pushing to east of Africa, UAE has developed good relations with Ethiopia, and that means that the UAE is willing to turn a blind eye to this Renaissance dam. UAE supports Hemeti, so Egypt believes if Hemeti wins, Hemeti will also support this Renaissance dam. Whereas Burhan has been openly against the dam. For Sudan, the dam doesn't affect it too much. Sudan is not too bothered whether the dam is built or not. But Egypt is keen on ensuring that an ally is there in order to prevent that dam from, built, from being built and also for the diplomatic support. And it's noteworthy that three days before this conflict erupted in Khartoum, the UAE's president, Mohammed bin Zayed, actually went to Cairo. And nobody could understand what this visit was about. Some people said it was about investment, but Sisi had been with Mohammed bin Zayed, had been with the UAE the week before, talking to them about investment. It made no sense for bin Zayed to go back to Cairo to sit with Sisi again. It was only when Hemeti took as prisoners Egyptian soldiers at Marawi Airport in Khartoum that everybody suddenly went, okay, so Hemeti and the UAE are now trying to strong arm Sisi into staying out of the conflict. The UAE saying, and the UAE actually halted a lot of their investment projects in Egypt. It was the UAE saying to Egypt, you have an economic crisis, an economy that's about to collapse, an economy in urgent need of finances. If you move an inch in favor of Burhan in Sudan, I will make sure you don't have access to these finances. And what was quite fascinating 
is that Sisi, who everybody knew was upset about what's happening in Sudan, in the statement after the Egyptian prisoners were released, thanked the UAE, which everybody interpreted as the sign to which, the extent to which Sisi is handcuffed by the UAE with regards to his policy in Sudan. And indeed, many Sudanese are quite confused why Sisi has not intervened. But Egypt is deeply unhappy with what's happening in Sudan, deeply unhappy with UAE policy, but Sisi has very limited room to maneuver. And it's important to stress, and I'll finish on this point, that UAE-Egypt differences are not just about Sudan, but for anybody following Libya, Libya is now between East and West. UAE-Egypt were part of the same allied camp, backing Haftar, who in 2019 almost toppled the internationally recognized government. But in the past couple of weeks, Haftar has been trying to topple his ally, who is the head of the House of Representatives in the East. The head of the House of Representatives backed by Egypt, Haftar backed by the UAE. So in the same camp, they are falling apart with one another, and it's being seen as this wrestling match. So I think with Egypt, they are handcuffed. They are not happy with what's happening in Sudan, but their options are very limited. So to wrap up into the international powers, Saudi, UAE, Egypt, Saudi, UAE are the dominant influence. And in terms of Egypt, they wish they could do something, but they're unable to as at the moment. Thank you. So just outlook. What are the chances of a peaceful resolution to this conflict? And what actions or compromises do you think would be required from um, both either side, as well as some of the international actors that you've mentioned who clearly have a stake in the game? Hamiti's coup or Hamiti's attack on the Sudanese army was supposed to be swift. Hamiti lives two or three blocks down from Burhan or two or three streets down from the army chief Burhan. He was supposed to quickly go to his house, which takes five minutes, assassinate the army chief, and then the constitution, because he's the number two, he would take over power. Burhan is rumored to have got a tip off and then left his house, and Hamiti didn't find Burhan in his house. The point here being is that Hamiti was supposed to make this a very quick enterprise, but he didn't. And now it put the international community in a very difficult situation. Should the international community back the army institution, a state, institution, which is the Sudanese army, or can they afford to be seen to be supporting what can only be described as a militia that is seeking to topple the Sudanese army? And this is why there's been a focus on presenting the parties as two factions, as opposed to an army versus a militia. Because when you say it's two factions and two generals, it's easier to justify standing back and holding a mediation process to try to bring them together. And the reason why that's important is because it answers the question about the outlook. What's happening at the moment is that the Sudanese army has been gaining the upper hand on the ground. And this is why we're seeing a louder calls for mediation, because the purpose of the mediation is not to find a resolution, but to rescue Hamiti, in that Hamiti has failed, but he's still the only viable leverage to force the army chief to make the necessary concessions. And therefore the mediation is about how can we maintain Hamiti's independence outside of the army. That's why the Sudanese army was unwilling to engage with the mediation process by Saudi Arabia, because they thought that what Saudi Arabia was doing was trying to preserve Hamiti, not to actually try to bring about a mediation. And that's why Turkey now is being touted as a mediating party because the Sudanese believe that they might be more amenable to actually forcing Hamiti to merge with the army. The point here being is that the outlook at the moment is to try to find a negotiated settlement through which Hamiti maintains his independence 
in order to be able to exert leverage over the army. And that's dangerous because it's a mediation that's seeking to entrench two very powerful armed forces, which is a recipe for a civil war. Essentially, it will just delay the inevitable. And that's why I think what's quite fascinating is that everybody knows Hamiti's supply routes. Everybody knows it's coming via Libya through Haftar. Everybody knows the, 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 the border with Chad is quite porous, that weapons are coming across or the like. But you will not find a single statement from the White House condemning the sources of arms for Hemeti. No condemnation of Haftar in Libya, no condemnation of these powers, but instead an assertion of a mediation process that everybody knows favors Hemeti and favors the preservation of his independence. And I think the international community is heavily sympathetic to Hemeti, not necessarily because they like him, but because they believe that he is easier to pressure in order to uphold this negotiated settlement and more committed to preventing a democratic transition that brings about the wrong result, as opposed to Burhan, who keeps threatening to hold elections and bring the Islamists back to power. Again, it's not democracy versus anti-democracy. Burhan just wants to rule. But the point here being is, if you're calculating who is going to bring the result that you prefer, the international community believes Hamiti is most likely. So in terms of the outlook, the Sudanese army has two choices. Either it obliterates Hamiti, which it's failing to do. Yesterday or the day before, we heard news that the RSF, that Hamiti has taken over water facilities, that he's still now, uh, that, that in Khartoum, He's still dominating swathes of areas of Khartoum, suggesting the army lacks the ability to oust the RSF. If you look at the Darfurians who we mentioned earlier, who are a sizable force, for those who don't know, the Darfurians were so strong that in 2008, they reached the gates of Khartoum and almost toppled the government before the peace process that incorporated them into the government. The Darfurians have left Khartoum. They've gone to sit in their home territory in Darfur and to watch to see how it unfolds before they decide to choose. In other words, it's indicative that they believe there will not be an outright winner. So to answer your question, the outlook now is between a negotiated settlement that either forces Hamiti to merge with the army, which is very unlikely, or that preserves Hamiti's independence outside the army so that he can be used later to threaten Burhan into making these concessions, not necessarily for a democratic process, but for a very politically motivated, negotiated transition that essentially isolates the Sudanese and in which democracy is not a particularly important factor. Thank you. Um, that is, it's very eye-opening. I really appreciate it, Sammy. Um... For more insight and analysis on global events, and to learn more about how you can join our community, visit us at network2020.org and follow us on social media.